Morning. It's my uh, distinct pleasure to introduce our uh, speaker this morning. He's my friend and my brother-in-law, Mark Bells. I want to tell you a little bit about Mark. He's a Scots alum from 1965, as is his wife, Linda. That's the first class that graduated here on Lookout Mountain, 1965. Yeah, yeah. He's the father of Aaron and Jane, who are both graduates of Covenant. He is the grandfather of Hannah, Elijah, Natalie, and Amelia. And I believe Hannah, along with her dad, Matt, is here today somewhere. There you are, yes. Um, with, with respect to the church, Mark is a past moderator of the PCA General Assembly. With respect to the college, Mark is a former member of the college's board of trustees. He has practiced law for many years in Iowa and then in St. Louis until 2008. And he is the author of three books, including this one, God, Satan, Job, and Friends, which is the occasion of his speaking to us uh, today. Most of all, Mark is a lover. He loves the St. Louis Cardinals. Yeah, yeah. But more importantly, he loves his family. He loves, yes. He loves the scriptures and he loves his savior, Jesus Christ. And these loves have definitely informed his writing. I've read all of his books and I can tell you that they reflect the wisdom who has, of one who has traveled the mountains and the valleys of life with his Lord. He writes out of humility, but also with the wit of a Midwestern lawyer. Uh, they are indeed good reads. As I mentioned earlier, he's my friend, for which I'm grateful. Please welcome Mark Bells. Morning, Covenant College. I did not know any of that. That's all brand new information to me. So. But Stephen has always been a very gracious son-in-law, uh, son-in-law, brother-in-law. He looks like my son-in-law, but not quite. Uh, yeah, my wife Linda and I actually had a romance together in the fall of 64 on the mountain hopeless the mountain just does that and we uh, were married the following summer right after we graduated in 65 so wandering through here just brought back obviously all kinds of uh, of memories it was in the fall of 64 that the college moved here from st louis as you know and uh, brought with it the uh student body that we had at the time, just about everybody came down. Now that wasn't very many, he's probably about a hundred or so, honestly, I think at that time. But we also, and I think more importantly, brought a faculty that was really an outstanding faculty, uh, as things go. Uh, one of those who came that fall of 64 was John Sanderson, and he's the one that I really want to 
talk about today and to honor today, particularly with regard to what he had to say about the book of Job and uh, his wonderful insights that he has left for us, really, as a, as a heritage, I believe. There's a building named uh, Sanderson Hall here with very good reason, because uh, if there's anybody who set the sails both academically and theologically for this great institution, it was John Sanderson. Uh, he had a wonderful preaching and teaching style, and one of the things that Steve and I have talked about a lot is the Sandersonian pause, who said that he could say more in a pause than many preachers could say in a series of sermons. Uh, and there was, I think, something uh, uh, to that. I remember in a lecture one day in the fall of 1964 when we were in class with him and we asked him, Dr. Sanderson, why did you and your wife Pearl decide uh, on coming to Lookout Mountain rather than to stay in St. Louis as you could have done? It might have been easier to teach at the seminary. He had both options open to him. And he said, I think the main reason was this, that my wife Pearl and I felt that it would be such a pity to Miss Rock City. <laughs> and he taught philosophy here, and he uh, lectured and preached English Bible. Had a special interest in the wisdom literature, and that's what I want to uh, get into today, just with regard to uh, the book of Job. Uh, I heard John Sanderson lecture on Job three times. Once in 1962, when he was at Covenant College in St. Louis, it was a two-week series. Uh, once in 1975, when I was attending Covenant Seminary uh, in uh, St. Louis. And then again in 1981, there was a shorter version of his lectures that I was able to attend. And, each of those times was a bit different, but I think the selections that I've got for you today about Sanderson on Job give you a flavor of the major themes that he emphasized and uh, some things that I think will be of help. This morning, I won't even attempt to do what would be impossible. I'm used to giving the lectures on Job in 13 sections, and I thought possibly if I just would practice and talk 13 times as fast that I could get that all in, but I'm not going to try to do that. Sanderson never wrote on the book, which is a shame. He did these lectures, and some of them have been now transcribed uh, for your use. It will soon be up on the internet at uh, the PCA archives, and so it will be public. But he didn't write on the book of Job. Even those of you, and I don't know how many here have had some formal instruction on the book of Job, such as a series of lectures or whatever. Uh, Dr. Sanderson asked that question in 1975. Same 
response, and in the recording, there's a long pause, and then he says, hmm, that's what I was afraid of. But it's worth, it's worth uh, getting into. Those that are even just passingly acquainted with the book of Job know the basic story. <clears throat> uh, the ancient patriarch was a very rich man. He had children. He uh, had a great family, apparently. They met together constantly. <clears throat> Excuse me, but most importantly, God thought highly of him. He said, this is my servant. He's the most righteous man in all the earth. He How would you like to have that said of you, that you were the most righteous man or woman? You might like that, but you might not like what followed as uh, a result of that, because Job was sailing along just fine in his life until one day when Satan and God had a conversation about Job, and that was um, to set things in motion for what would happen in the book. Satan met with God. Job was sailing along fine. And the Lord said to Satan, who was, of course, on the prowl, as he always is, he said, have you considered my servant Job? Well, of course, Satan had been doing just that, and Satan said to the Lord, well, you say that he's your servant. Of course he's your servant. Who wouldn't be? You've blessed him. You've protected him. You've given him a great family. You've given him all kinds of money and cattle and lands, and you're protecting him. So, of course he's your, of course he's your servant, or claims to be. But if you take all that protection away, you're going to find something out. You're going to find that Job isn't your servant at all, that he's a fraud, and he's going to curse you to your face. Well, God said, go to it. Let's see. And he removed the head, took all that protection away. And of course, Satan moved in like a flash and destroyed Job. Now, I think this is where one of the first major perspectives that Sanderson has for us is, is helpful. Listen, Sanderson at the outset of his discussion of Job's sufferings tells us that one of the keys to the understanding of the book is to understand some things about God. I'm going to quote from Sanderson. Quote, First of all, we see God's sovereignty. In theological circles today, the word sovereignty has a very narrow uh, meaning, much narrower than it does when you read about it in the Bible, and this is unfortunate because we talk about the sovereignty of God, we talk about the five points of Calvinism, and things of that sort, which is all very good, very true, but the sovereignty of God is a much broader term than that. For example, in the discussion between God and Satan here, Satan comes in and presents himself before the Lord. And the Lord says, what have you been doing? 
And Satan says, well, I've been sort of roaming around in the earth, been looking for trouble. The Lord then says, have you considered my servant Job? There's nobody like him in all the world. Who started all Job's trouble? God did it. God did it. Well, what right does God have to do that? I mean, here's a man who is just leaning over backwards to be holy and righteous and sanctified and all the rest of it. I mean, what in the world? Okay, let's come face to face with the sovereignty of God. God has the right, no question. So he can say to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? End of quote. Well, you can see that the book of Job is a hard read. It's a hard read for this very reason, because of the sovereignty of God. In fact, I've come to the point where I believe that most of the life's great mysteries arise out of the sovereignty of God. For the Christian, at least. But also, as Job would later find, that the Christian's greatest comfort comes from the sovereignty of God. All right, let's move forward. Job was certainly a sinner, but you know, we learn in the book that's not the reason he suffered at all. But he did suffer. In fact, by the end of chapter two, Job is utterly ruined. He has no children. He has no property. He's sick. He's been stricken with a what he thinks is an illness is going to take his life, and he's sitting on an ash heap outside the city. He has three friends who really did mean to help him, but they did anything but help him, as it turned out. And Job is there all alone, just a kind of human, what would you say, a human Aleppo destroyed just sitting there. And Job begins to speak. It's not pretty. Begins right at chapter 3. He says, Then Job opened his mouth, and he cursed the day of his birth. Wow. God damn my birthday. Comes close, perhaps, to cursing God. But it doesn't. He does not. Never does. Job complains bitterly. And listen to what Sanderson says about that. Quote, the thing I want you to recognize is that we have Job here in the depths of despair. But it's important to notice that his despair does not come from the fact that he's a sick man. Nor is he in despair because he's in pain. He's in despair because God is playing a significant part in his troubles. He is, if I may say so, enough of a Calvinist to see that God is in 
his problems. And that's what bothers him. Then we need to see that this is one of the clues to the interpretation of the book. The book of Job is not about why do people suffer. The book is about what is the relationship between man and God. And the book of Job is, and incidentally, I would encourage you if you're taking notes, to just write this one thing down, because this is Sanderson's stated theme uh, for the book of Job. The book of Job is, quote, a revelation of the glory of God and the implications which that revelation has for our faith in binding us back to God. I think that is, as you read through the book of Job, this uh, theme stated in such a way is just excellent. Particularly at the end, the implications that it has for our faith in binding us back to God. Because an experience that every one of us has is that we have difficulties. We begin to bend away from God and worry and what Faith does, as it did powerfully in the book of Job, is to bind us uh, back to God. Uh, so Job complains. He complains uh, bitterly. But he's got these friends, and they come in. And I'll just say briefly about the friends that they're wrong. We know that, because God said so at the end. He said, you have not said about me what is right. I'm angered with you. But Job has these friends who mean well. They're here to help. But their theory is, their theology is that the only answer for your problem, Job, is that you've sinned and that you haven't confessed it. You haven't made it right with God. That's your reason. Get that straightened out and you'll be on your way. But that is false for two reasons. Number one, because Job hadn't sinned in such a way that it brought this on. And secondly, because it's just not true. When you see suffering, it's not necessarily proof of sin at all. Think about Abel. He suffered. Well, think about Jesus. That's not true. Their theology was wrong. But Job is simply unable to see God. And that's his major frustration. He keeps seeking God. He keeps asking God for a hearing. He keeps listening to his friends and increasingly turns away from them and looks at God and says, my argument is with you. It's not with my friends. You're the one who could change this if you would, and there is absolutely no reason that I can see on your green earth <laughs> as to why I should be treated like I am, and you're treating me just like uh, you do the, the wicked. Job does arise with these statements of faith, kind of surprisingly. He'll be right in the middle of a of a kind of mournful uh, description of where he is in one way or the other, and then just out of the blue. He says, 
In one chapter, he keeps talking about the, fact, about the fact that he has no friends. But then, very appropriately, he says, however, I know that my Redeemer lives, and gives that great statement of faith about the resurrection, makes other statements too. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Even now there's someone mediating for me in heaven. God knows the way I take. I might not see him, but he sees me. He has these tremendous statements of faith, but then he quickly sinks back into his uh, despondence. He simply can't understand why God is after him. Well, and he keeps seeking an audience. He wants an answer. You know, that in chapter 38, there's a very interesting word, and it's pivotal in the book. It's the little word ana, which in Hebrew, which in English means uh, answer. Uh, verbs are important. The great uh, theologian, Steve Martin, said that when he wrote his first book, it did not find ready acceptance. And he said people would tell him it's difficult to read, Mr. Martin. Uh, and it just doesn't seem to have any movement. He said his second book sold much better because he said by that time he had uh, discovered verbs. <laughs> well, verbs are crucial. This is a, a verb that's very crucial because it says God answered Job. So what follows we need to look at as relevant. A lot of people don't think it is relevant. I'm not sure Job did when he first heard the Lord speak. The Lord finally after weeks and weeks and probably months of waiting is answering out of the whirlwind. But what he says is to tell Job exclusively about his works of creation and his works of providence. He's going to tell Job what he thinks about the foundation of the earth, stars, seas, birds, snow, rain, ostriches, donkeys, oxen, just all kinds of things that don't seem to have a thing to do with what Job had raised as issues. Seems like a non sequitur. Uh, listen to what Sanderson, I think at his best at this, in this particular quote, says about this. Uh, as a little background, he was giving these lectures in St. Louis. And for those of you poor folk that haven't been to St. Louis, uh, come up, cardinal country. But uh, it there's a Highway 40, US 40, and on the north side of 40 is Forest Park, and right next to Forest Park is Barnes Hospital. They're all kind of clustered together there. So you need to know that for this, what I think is Sanderson uh, in one of the best statements. I suppose, he says, that traditionally it's been argued and urged that the book of Job deals with the problem, why do the righteous suffer? And if you have someone who's very sick, well, you give them the book of Job. And as they read the book of Job, they're going to find a complete and 
full explanation of suffering as it goes on in this world, and then they're going to feel better. Well, I'm not exactly sure that that traditional view is a very good one. Let's try it out on you for a moment. Let's suppose you were Job, you've lost all your wealth and all your family, and now you are a very sick man or woman, sick with a terrible disease, expecting to die. And also, let's suppose in good pastoral fashion, I should drive up to your house, even with an ambulance, and you would expect me to be taking it down to one of these hospitals around here for good treatment. But we drive right past all the hospitals. You see us going down Route 40. We get off at Forest Park. You say, wait, where are you taking me anyhow? And then, oh yes, that's right. Barnes Hospital is right across from Forest Park. But we don't go to Barnes. We go to the zoo. Then you take, then we take you out of the ambulance. We put you on a stretcher. We just wheel you around and show you the giraffes, the hippopotami, and all kinds of animals, ostriches, and things like that. And we say to you, well, now that you've got that lesson, let's go over to the planetarium. Let's look at Orion and Pleiades and Arcturus. And then when we're done looking at that, we'll just take you on back to the house. You're going to say, okay, fine. I've enjoyed the sightseeing trip, but... When am I going to get well? What does any of this have to do with my problem? I think one of the great exercises for each one of us in the book of Job is to work on that question. What did what God have to say and where he took Job, which was to the zoo and the planetarium, what did that have to do with his problem and what does it have to do with our problems? Well, there's obviously a reason that God took Job to the zoo and to the planetarium. I'm going to move along quickly since we're oh so short of time. And I was told that we can't go over, but we'll see about that. <laughs> Sanderson says that God did have a reason for taking Job to the zoo. Quote, one of the great reasons for visiting the zoo is to be confronted with a lot of animals that you don't understand. I mean, what's the good of a hippopotamus? Stupid looking, awkward, ugly, just a great big mound of blubber? I'll be honest with you, I haven't got the ghost of an idea. And that tells me something. Because if I can't figure out a hippopotamus, that tells me that there's a lot that I don't know. And that's why you and I ought to take some time to go down to the zoo for half an hour. Just look for the whole time at the hippopotamus. Because God does know, and God had a reason. God doesn't make any mistakes at all. And it may not be necessary for you to know. 
what a hippopotamus is all about. Just so God does. And God says, I do. And the glory of God comes across as wisdom. And that's why we go to the zoo. I want to tell you just very briefly, hopefully it will not take more than 60 seconds to an hour, uh, <laughs> about an experience that I had in the last 10 years. I had an, an issue that was very important to me. And I prayed about it. I prayed about it for more than two years. Every day, lots of times, several times a day, it was just because it was so important. And I had all kinds of arguments based on scripture as to why this would be a good thing. But two years into it, I was sitting at my desk my office in front of the computer as most of us do every day in one way or the other and I got an email that showed absolutely that my prayer had been answered in the wrong way as far as I was concerned negative two years of prayer up in smoke looked like and I went like this, I covered my face, and I put my elbows down. Every so often I'd peek at the screen to be sure that I had read it right, hoping that I hadn't, but no, it was still there. But you know, while I had my hands over my eyes, and don't ever underestimate the work of the Holy Spirit, just at times like that, when you're blasted away, when you just don't know what to think. The Holy Spirit is there at that time for the Christian. And I sat there, and do you know that I began to think about Sanderson's hippopotamus? There was a hippopotamus. It was right there on the screen. You could see it big as day. I didn't understand it. It sure was big. It sure was ugly. It sure was inexplicable as far as I was concerned. But you know what? The glory of God, even at that moment, began to come across as wisdom. Because it wasn't so important for me to know what that hippopotamus was all about. Just so God knew. And he says, I do. And the glory of God comes across as wisdom. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that you are wisdom, that you are that not just to yourself, but that you share that in us and with us. We praise you for the encouragement that we can receive from Scripture and this morning from your servant, Job. Amen.